I wonder as we meet here today what it is that threatens you, what it is that you are apprehensive about, uh, what a great problem you may be struggling with. Maybe it's the situation of our nation as you watch the escalating law- lawlessness, the moral decay, the uh, revolutionary trends, the financial chaos that we seem to be heading into. And maybe it's the threat of communism as it grows daily stronger, seemingly, as it gains more and more of a foothold in our hemisphere. Uh, what is it that threatens you? Maybe it's a personal problem. Maybe a problem that your child faces. Maybe a problem that you face in business, in your family. Israel, or rather Judah, was threatened with a very serious problem, very serious enemy. Assyria had come up against her. Ahaz, the former king, had, uh, against God's commandment, appealed to Assyria for help against Syria. And uh, Assyria had come, but not to help, but rather to enslave Judah. Hezekiah, Ahaz's successor and a good king, a godly king in many respects, one who sought to bring true revival to the nation who reinstituted the worship of God Almighty, uh, nonetheless uh, had failed in his reform to be really thoroughgoing, and he had uh, himself engaged in the folly of looking to men for help instead of trusting in the Lord alone as the theocratic nation God's people were to do, because they had a king, the Lord Almighty. And he saw it as spiritual adultery to look elsewhere for help. But Hezekiah walked to go down to Egypt to find help against this mighty nation of Assyria. And God said that Egypt would be no help. And he said, In returning in rest ye shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Turn back to me. Trust in me. And then you'll be strong. Be quiet. Don't panic. Rely on me. And they would not. And so on moves this terrible army, the Assyrian army, devastating city after city of Judah as she moves towards the capital, Jerusalem, where the king and the people tremble. Uh, No real defense against this invading army. But then uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks, and he predicts the spoiling of the Assyrian army. What a word! The prediction that the Assyrian army itself shall be spoiled. In verse 1, Woe to thee that spoilest, and wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. We remember the background. The reason that the nation of Assyria was coming against God's people, Judah, was that God's people had sinned, and this was God's way of punishing and chastising his people. And as he uses the phrase uh, earlier, Assyria is but a rod that he whips his nation with, uses one nation to chastise another, an axe in the hand of a hewer. But God would set the limit. And when he had used Assyria to a certain point to accomplish 
to finish his whole work upon Mount Zion, then Assyria itself would be spoiled. It would go thus far and no further when God's work was accomplished. This mighty nation would be weak as water. It would be spoiled. That's the prediction. There's a prayer uh, offered by Isaiah, and as we follow along several more chapters, we find that this prayer is offered by the people there in Jerusalem, the praying people of God, and by the king himself as he spreads out his situation before God and cries on God for help. Here's the prayer. O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for thee. And then Isaiah, in a sense, uh, having joined the people in their prayer, now disassociates and prays for the nation. He says, Be thou their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. Oh God, help us. Notice the basis on which he urges this petition. He says, we have waited on thee. Now, up to this point, they hadn't. Up to this point, they'd waited on the Egyptians, and they had run here for help, and they'd run there for help. But they got no help. And when they came to where every other strategy had failed, and they looked to God alone for help, now, says Isaiah, God, you can bless them now. Now they're trusting in you. Their own efforts have failed. And God acts. We have here the prediction of the answer to prayer. Uh, the uh, preview of what will take place. In uh, verse 3 it says, At the noise of the tumult the people fled. Uh, the scattering of the Assyrian army is predicted here. As Isaiah sees this in vision. Uh, the uh, noise of tumult, the tumultuous noise, or better, the voice of tumult. We read back in Isaiah 30, in verse 30, For <clears throat> through the voice of the Lord shall the Assyrian be beaten down, which smote with a rod. This noise of a voice will be the Lord's voice, as he speaks but a word, and this mighty nation is scattered and spoiled, as it goes on to say, and your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. As the running to and fro of locusts shall he run upon them. The Jewish people would flow out of Jerusalem, the besieged city, and would take plunder of this fleeing, scattered army. Here's the vision that Isaiah sees as an answer to this prayer. The facts of the case, what actually took place, we read several chapters on. In verse 36, we read that when King Hezekiah spread his case out before God and said, you're our only hope, that this is what took place. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when they awoke early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. They were either dead or they fled. God spoke. The angel of death goes at his command. Slays, maybe by a plague, it seems by a plague, 185,000 of this great army besieging Jerusalem. And then the people of Jerusalem, it's not mentioned, but they went out and took for themselves all the plunder that 
the Assyrian army had gathered in its marauding uh, visitation there. The person responsible for this, the Lord. In verse 5, the Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. What does that mean then? In verse 6, wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. You want stability? Wisdom and knowledge give stability, not science, not talking about that kind of wisdom. Wisdom from God and a knowledge of God, this gives stability. This gives an individual stability, this gives a nation stability. Therefore, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Judah's treasure wasn't its gold that it tried to buy help with, wasn't any military leaders that it might have had. Judah's treasure was the fear of the Lord. Those people within the nation who knew the Lord, who revered him, who worshipped him in truth, they were the treasure of that nation. What's the treasure of our nation today? Our army? Not worth that. Our anti-ballistic missile systems that we're developing? Not worth that. What's the strength and treasure of our nation? The people in our nation who know the Lord and who pray. God told Abraham he would have spared Sodom if he could find ten righteous men in that nation. Here's the strength of our city. Oh, God's people, pray, walk with the Lord. Here's the treasure of a nation, right here. Here's what we have that's worth any value. We get not only this uh, prediction of the spoiling of the Assyrian army, but we get a picture of the situation that Judah would first have to pass through before this spoiling of the Assyrians took place. Uh, this is given in verses 7 to 12, where it speaks of Judah's ambassadors returning. They've gone seeking peace. They come back weeping. Uh, it speaks of the wasting of the highways, as uh, it's no longer safe to travel the highways due to the enemy army. It speaks of the devastation of the land as they move forward towards Jerusalem. The earth mourneth and languisheth. But then it speaks of the intervention of God Almighty. Verse 10, Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. And then he addresses himself to Assyria and he says, You're going to be like thorns that have burnt by fire. Just turn to lime. This is what will be the result when I lift myself up. The intervention providentially of God Almighty. When would he lift himself up? When the nation came to an end of itself and turned and looked to him alone. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. That's the pattern throughout Scripture. It's a pattern today. I think of a young college boy that came to see me just this week. And as he sat there and dissolved in tears, he acknowledged that he'd come to an end of himself. And he must receive Jesus Christ or he could not face the problems that he had. When man comes to an end of his own solutions, then God's opportunity comes. Then he turns. Then God will raise himself up, move in, act. The people in Zion and their security is mentioned in verse 14. Sinners in Zion are afraid. 
fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Zion was, in a sense, Jerusalem or the hill there that the temple sat on. And uh, Zion represents symbolically the people of God. But, you know, among the people of God, there are those who are the true people of God, and then there are the sinners in Zion. They are a part externally of the people of God. They are members of the church, the visible church, but they are not really a part of God's true church. They are hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? If you ask my little girl that, she'll real quick come back. A hypocrite is somebody that says they love the Lord Jesus, but they don't obey Him. She's learned what it is. That doesn't mean she's been freed from it. But anyway... Uh, a hypocrite, someone who says they love the Lord Jesus, but they don't obey him. The hypocrites in God's visible church, hypocrites here today, sinners in Zion. Two kinds of folks in Zion. One, people who haven't been changed by God's word. Their will is still as it always was. They want to do what they want to do. They have no intention of conforming their lives to God's will. Sinners in Zion, they do what they want to do. When there's a conflict between God's ways and their will, they do what they want to do. How did this affect them when God moved out in sudden judgment on this enemy nation? Did they all shout, praise God? We would expect them to do that, but that isn't what they did. They trembled. They were afraid as they watched God deal with the Assyrian nation in such strong judgment. Why? They reacted like this. It raised a question in their mind. They said, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? They said, If God's like that, what's going to happen to me? Deep within, they knew they weren't right with God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, deep within, I suspect you know it. You know you're a sinner in Zion. And when you read of some judgment like this, where God suddenly raised himself up and reduced to lime his enemies, how does that affect you? Doesn't it make you tremble? Doesn't it make you say, what's going to happen to me? I can't approach a God like that. I can't dwell with that kind of a being. Exactly. God's temporal punishments are intended to wake us up, to bring us to repentance before it's too late. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the reaction of the sinners in Zion and their question as an answer given to the question, and here we pick up the description of the righteous and their protection from God. Here's the answer that Isaiah gives. You want to know who can dwell with a God like that? Who can dwell with everlasting burnings? A God who is a consuming fire? Here's who. He that walketh up righteously and speaketh uprightly. He that despiseth the gain of oppression. He won't do anything dishonest no matter how much it benefits him. That shaketh his hands from the holding of bribes. When someone puts a bribe in his hand, he throws it away. He won't touch it. 
that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood. He won't participate in any evil deed. He closes his ears. He shuts his eyes to it. He abhors that which is evil. He cleaves to that which is good. Here's the man who can dwell with everlasting burnings. He said, well, I thought there wasn't a righteous man on the face of the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That's right. You've understood the Bible. A little later on, Isaiah 64, Isaiah says, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There's not a one of us who has walked perfectly before the Lord of hosts. But what we have here is not a picture of what an individual must do in order to earn the right to dwell with a God who's like that, a holy God. What we have here is a description of the characteristics of the man who now is right with God as a result of realizing his sin. He has turned to God, an inner change has taken place. He no longer is characterized as doing his own will, but he's characterized as the trend of his life is doing the will of God from the heart. He walks righteously. He speaks uprightly. He has been changed by coming to God and acknowledging his guilt, asking God's forgiveness through the great sacrifice, Jesus Christ, that God provided as a sin bearer for us. And coming to God, he is forgiven, and he's been inwardly changed, so now his trend of life is different. This is like the 24th Psalm. In the 24th Psalm, who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands. In other words, one whose hands have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who hath a pure heart, his heart's been purified, and he now purifies and cleanses himself daily as he reapplies to Christ for forgiveness. He's been bathed, his feet get dirty daily, and they are cleaned as he confesses his sins and asks forgiveness and repents. He that hath clean hands and a poor, pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. That's the man that is described here. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 3, it's put like this in living letters. It says, all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious ideal. Yet now God declares that we're good in his eyes if we trust in Jesus Christ, who freely takes away our sins. For God sent Christ Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to end all God's anger against us. He used Christ's blood and our faith to satisfy God's wrath. Christ's blood and our faith. Christ's death for my sin my faith in him, my reliance upon him. On one occasion, John Payton, the famous missionary to the New Hebrides, was trying to communicate this good news of Christ's death and the way of salvation by faith to the natives. And he couldn't find a word to express faith. And as he visited in the home of an old woman, he kept trying to draw out of her a word that he could use to express faith. And he sat in a chair and he said, what am I doing? And she said, well, 
you are reclining on the chair. You're sitting in the chair, and to use the native terminology. And this didn't satisfy him. He picked both feet up and held them in the air while he sat on the chair. He said, what am I doing now? She said, you're resting all of your weight upon the chair. You're relying solely on the chair. He said, that's the word I want right there. That's faith in Jesus Christ, resting solely upon him as our way of salvation, on his death for me. And then he goes on to say that, Therefore we are saved by faith in Christ and not by the good things we do. Well, then, if we are saved by faith, does this mean that we no longer need obey God's laws? That's just what it does not mean. In fact, only when we trust Jesus can we truly obey him because of the change that this trust brings in my nature as Christ comes to live within. It produces a different pattern of life. The Christian still sins, but nonetheless, the trend of his life is one of walking uprightly and righteously doing God's will. And when he sins, he's repentant, and he hates it, and he turns from it, and he asks God's forgiveness, and he starts off again. Does that description fit you or not? You know whether or not it does. If it does not, you're a sinner in Zion, and you cannot dwell with a God of eternal burning. He mentions the description of the saved, and then he mentions their protection. He says, He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of the rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. This is going back to that day and what they looked upon as real security. It was a place way up in the mountains. There among the Judean mountains, a protected by rocks, and a place where the water supply couldn't be cut off. And it says, this is the kind of security that the Christian has. He dwells on high. His munitions are the rocks. His bread and water shall be sure. God will see to it. Then he mentions the vision that the true believer in Zion has. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. E.J. Young says this can only be speaking of the Messiah. The true believer sees the Messiah. He sees him now. You see Jesus Christ today if you're a true believer. You see him by faith. You know that he exists. You know that he died for you. You know that he rose from the dead. You orient your life according to these beliefs. You see him who is invisible by faith. He couldn't be more real if he was standing right here on this stage. You know that he's real. You know these things are true. You commune with him daily. You see him. But one day you'll see him face to face. We know him part now. But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. We'll see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. We see him in the land that is very far off. We see him in a land of distances now. We see his kingdom. A man who's born again knows of God's existing in this world kingdom right now, that some folks are in it and some folks are not, and that those who are in it are different. But he'll see it one day 
in heaven. Now and later, he has this vision. Isaiah sums all of this up in a brief passage that speaks of the permanence of Zion and its Savior. He says, you know, let's just reflect a minute now about what I've said, and you reflect on what takes place. Here's a mighty nation coming against a seemingly defenseless city. And all of a sudden, he says, where is this scribe that came? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counteth the towers? This nation and its representatives, its leaders, those who come to uh, extract tribute from you, what happened to them? They're gone. The mightiest nation in the world suddenly vanished. And look what's still standing. Zion. And what does that mean? That means Zion's different. That means God's church will exist and stand forever. It's secure. It's protected. He speaks of the permanence of Zion. He says, look upon Zion in verse 20. The city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem a quiet habitation, assailed but quiet, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down, not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. It's permanent. It's secure. There's the statement of it. And the source of this permanence the glorious Lord will be to us a place of broad rivers and streams. You know, in ancient days, a city wanted to be by a great river that would defend the city, in a sense. You couldn't approach it because of this great river. If a ship tried to come up to it, why, it would be crushed in the rapids or on the shoals there. It says, the Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams, streams wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ships pass thereby. He'll be the protection to his people. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. If you can say the first part, you can say the last part. If you can say, the Lord is my lawgiver, his law is my rule, every thought I strive to bring into captivity to his word, I'm concerned about one thing in this world, and that is that I do the will of God. If you can say that, if you can say, the Lord is my king, I'm his slave, his word is my command, I live for him, if you can say that, then you can make the last statement, He will save us. That's true. God will save us. If God be for us, who can be against us? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That kind of boldness belongs to the people of Zion. The strength of its inhabitants their security we've seen, the source of this, but notice the strength of the inhabitants of God's Zion. He says, Thy tacklings are loosed, 
They could not well strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Right now, he says, Zion is defenseless. Zion's like a ship that's mast is dismantled. But he says, that doesn't mean, just because externally here we're weak, that doesn't mean that we're not really strong. He says, then is the prey of a great spoil divided, the lame take the prey. Though Zion is like a dismasted ship, she will prevail over the proud ships of her foes and take spoil of them, abundant spoil, so much so that the lame shall take the prey. The weakest inhabitant of God's Zion, the weakest Christian here today, shall triumph victoriously over all of his foes. Nothing in this world is able to effectually overcome him. The lame take the prey. It's true of the weakest Christian here that he can do all things through Jesus Christ, who is his strength. And he will overcome. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or fire, or sword, or nakedness, or peril, things present, things to come, powers of the underworld, shall any of these things separate us? Nay, for we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the strength of the inhabitants of Zion. Christian, that means as weak as you feel yourself to be, you are strong in the Lord. As a matter of fact, when we are conscious of our weakness, that's when we have his strength. Go out and plunder the enemy. Go out and take great spoil. Bring captivity captive. Bring those who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ under his sway by virtue of your evangelistic activities. Take these problems that face you and turn them into stepping stones as God enables you to wade through them one after another. As you look to the Lord, the lame will take the prey. That's the strength of the inhabitants of Zion. The salvation that all of this is based on in verse 24, the inhabitant shall not say, I'm sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. There's the source of it all. Our iniquity has been lifted up and placed on Jesus Christ, and our sin is forgiven. We're well, well spiritually. The day will come when even physical well-being will be ours. You know, there's a day coming when that old Zion will be a new Zion. A new Jerusalem. John speaks of it in Revelation 21. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, descending as a bride adorned for her husband. He said the tabernacle of God is there. He dwells therein. God shall be with him and shall be their God. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. The former things are passed away. That's the lot of the inhabitant of true Zion. Strength is yours. Salvation is yours. Security is yours. Lift up your heads. Don't be afraid. Don't tremble. Move out against all of your foes. Conquer them. 
in the strength of your mighty Savior. What about all this? What's it say to us in our situation today? It seems to say something to us about the situation of our nation. Our nation is in trouble. The treasure of our nation is the people of God who pray to God, who are repentant, who deal with their sins, who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, who spread it, who are determined no matter what happens, they will do the will of God. These are the treasure of any nation. But they must pray. They must ask God to rise up and protect and bless. Again, uh, our city. Our city is facing in miniature what our nation faces in magnitude. And yet we have a great opportunity, it seems to me, for God to strike a mighty blow in the coming Billy Graham crusade. What God will do in that crusade depends on God's people, on his treasure here in our city. Will God rise up in strength and power? You say, well, that'll be up to Billy. No, it won't. That'll be up to you and me as we pray. In your packet you had a little card that asked about you enlisting in a prayer group to pray for the Billy Graham Crusade. And I challenge you to take that very seriously, to fill that card out before you leave this morning and leave it on the pew. And we'll pick it up and turn it in to the Billy Graham Crusade headquarters. And they'll get in touch with you about being in a prayer group. This is a great opportunity for us to see God rise up against our enemies. I'm in one that meets on Monday morning, a group of ministers that meet to pray for the crusade. It ain't easy for me to get up 6.30 on Monday morning. That's my day off, and I kind of just, I'm tired after Sunday. But I get up, and I go down, and I've been blessed, and something unusual has happened every time I've gone. I challenge you. Get in one of these prayer groups. Again, uh, maybe this says something else to you. It raises the issue. Where are you spiritually? Are you a hypocrite? Are you a sinner in Zion? You know. Can you dwell with eternal burnings? Are you prepared for the God you've got to deal with and the kind of judgment he renders? You better get ready. Maybe you're asleep. Sinners in Zion that are asleep at comfort in Zion. I read recently of uh, something that took place in Frankfurt, Germany. A drunk <clears throat> crawled into a dustbin by the main railway station and went to sleep one night. The next morning, the men came to pick up the dustbin. And uh, they didn't know he was in it. They picked him up, they took it out, and dumped it in the garbage dump. And he didn't wake up. And from there it went on a conveyor belt into a great furnace. And as he was on this conveyor belt asleep, approaching the furnace, a man was stationed about two yards from the mouth of the furnace, responsible to catch out and remove incombustible objects. And as he's looking for things, suddenly he notices the form of a man in all of this refuge and grabs him and pulls him out just before it piles on over into the furnace. And this man woke up and realized the awful death he just missed. Are you like that man? 
Are you a sinner in Zion, asleep, headed for that kind of a situation? Do something about it today. Commit your life to God through Christ today. Yield to Him today. Right now, before you leave, let's bow in prayer. God, speak to each of our hearts through this mighty prophecy of Isaiah's. And may we realize wherein the true treasure of a nation lies. May we not be impressed with science or with uh, armies, Lord, but may we be impressed with your people who pray. And may we pray. God, help us to examine our lives, to know whether we're sinners in Zion or whether we're saved people characterized by these tests that you've brought before us of walking righteously and speaking uprightly. God, we would pray for those present now who know themselves to be outside of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that right now a number of them would commit their lives in the utmost sincerity to him. If you're here and you know in your heart that you're not right with God and you mean business, you're willing for Christ to be king of you and his law to be your law, then in your heart pray like this. Almighty God, I acknowledge my deep rebellion against you. But Lord, I am willing for you to be my king and my lawgiver. I need a savior and I trust you alone. I rest all my weight upon you to save this sinner through Jesus Christ. Amen.